Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. This week, we are going to address an issue that is fundamental to the health of our democracy, the redistricting process. How we draw our congressional and state legislative districts has a big impact on who gets elected to represent us in legislative bodies across the country. When districts are gerrymandered according to a particular party's political interests, the will of voters is distorted. In 2018, for example, three states handed control of a state legislative chamber to the party who received fewer votes. In North Carolina, the 13 U.S. congressional districts in that state were drawn with the express intent of giving one party control of 10 out of those 13, even though North Carolina is split about 50-50 between Republican and Democratic voters. That congressional district map is at the center of a case being considered right now by the U.S. Supreme Court, and the ruling of the court could have immense consequences for redistricting and our democracy. We're going to dive into all this with Michael Lee, who is a leading national expert on the issue of redistricting. Michael serves as senior counsel for the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. Before we get to that conversation, I'm going to squeeze in a little plug for myself. I authored a piece that is now, thankfully, being featured on Medium, titled, What Escaping an Active Shooter Taught Me About Democracy? I actually touch on some of the same themes that we address here in my conversation with Michael. You can check it out at medium.com or just Google Medium Jake Williams. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Michael Lee. Michael Lee, welcome. Hello, how are you? Okay, so you're a lawyer, but you rose to prominence on this issue of redistricting as a blogger. Is that fair to say? It is. I, I was uh, practicing law in Texas, and uh, yeah, I'd done some election law um, and, and been involved in politics um, and, and nonprofit work. And But I started writing about the redistricting cycle because there was very little information out there, and I thought... You know, it'd be kind of cool to like write something so that people can keep up with what's happening because it's a really important topic. And I um, started writing it. Originally, it was once or twice a week, and then it became four or five times a day. And I, I got, uh, you know, I ended up uh, developing a reputation in this area and really uh, falling in love with it. And, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. So, do prestigious institutions like NYU typically give prestigious posts like yours? to bloggers like you, or is this kind of unusual? Uh, I guess it's a little unusual. Um, I, you know, I, I, I guess I would say I'm a, like a B-rate version of like Nate Silver or, um, uh, you know, the, the founders of Vox or something like that. And something similar happened. So, you know, I guess it's a very democratic process, small d in, in, in that sense. So let's dive right into this issue of redistricting. Uh, every 10 years we run a census as per the Constitution, and then that data is used to draw the congressional and legislative districts around the country. I'll start with an easy one. What are the basic constitutional guidelines for drawing those districts? So there are relatively few. Um, The biggest one is that the districts have to be equally populated. That's a principle called one person, one vote, and it comes from the 1960s. And the idea is that um, everybody's vote should be equal. Um, and, and so um, districts have to contain the, the same numbers of people. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of controversy around whether states could draw them to contain equal numbers of citizens or equal numbers of voters. But right now, everybody does it so that they contain the same number of people. So that's principle number one. 
principle number two is they can't discriminate against racial or ethnic minorities and they have to comply with the Voting Rights Act. So those are the federal requirements. And then in addition, states oftentimes impose additional requirements, for example, about keeping counties together or keeping communities of interest intact. But uh, at least with respect to congressional redistricting, there actually in most states are relatively few rules beyond the federal rules that apply. Um, there are many more rules that apply to to um, legislative redistricting and to city council redistricting and the, and the like. But uh, for whatever reason, historically, states have not had a lot of constraints on their congressional redistricting. Uh, the one constraint that you haven't heard me mention is a ban on partisan gerrymandering because the Supreme Court up until now, and it may change in the near future, but up until now, the Supreme Court hasn't clearly put partisan gerrymandering out of bounds. And so there's a lot of belief, at least among people, that they can do whatever they want when it comes to partisanship. They, they, they can't do it on the on racial basis, but if they're doing it on the basis of partisanship, then that's okay. Uh, the Supreme Court, as early as June, may come down with a decision which changes that, but that's the, the rules right now. Let's swing back to that court case uh, that the Supreme Court is considering and get a couple more basics established first. You mentioned a term, communities of interest. What are those? So that is a term that is often used in redistricting, and it's also contained in some constitutional provisions, for example, in California or in Michigan. But usually it is just an ad hoc term that people use that it, it, what it means is a, a group of people who have similar interests and representational needs. So, for example, a community of interest could be a town or it could be a neighborhood or it could be, you know, people who have young children and, you know, they, they all go to the same public school. And so therefore they should be in the same district so that they can have somebody who is representing them on those needs. And so, um, you know, community of interest is a very open and flexible term and there are different ways to define it, but it is something that, that you know, I think most people would say is really important to try to keep together if you, if you can. Um, and it, I should say, it's also important to understand that we, there are, multiple communities of interest that we all belong to. So, for example, an African-American woman living on the Upper West Side of New York, which is a mostly white neighborhood and, and pretty affluent, um, you know, has needs in common with all of her neighbors about whatever their subway station is, about the traffic, about crime or whatever the, the needs are. But this African-American woman living on the Upper West Side of New York um, also may have children who potentially are stopped and frisked or, you know, are uh, racially profiled by police or have to deal with other things. So we all belong to different communities of interest and they overlap. And the question of redistricting oftentimes is which community you give priority to. And that's something that in an open and, and, and transparent redistricting process, you know, those things can get worked out by negotiation and whatnot. Um, but uh, it is important to understand that there's not just one community that deserves to be protected. You know, there, there oftentimes are multiple ones and you have to sort of work that out. So the last time we went through this was in 2011. We redistricted the nation based on the information provided in the 2010 census. And in the aftermath of that process, a lot of people said that the Democrats were kind of asleep at the wheel when it came to the uh, maneuvering of the Republican Party and ensuring that districts got drawn in a way that would advantage their party. Do you think that's true? And how did that all play out? So there, there's no question that in the lead up to redistricting in 2011, Democrats were asleep at the wheel. 
And whereas Republicans were very attuned to this, and they weren't really hiding it. Karl Rove actually wrote in the Wall Street Journal that the most important races in 2010 were not races for the Senate or for the House of Representatives. They were legislative races in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Round Rock, Texas, because those races and who won them would determine who controlled redistricting. And as Karl Rove said, he who controls redistricting controls Congress. So they were very strategic about putting money into these races. And many, you know, a lot of times uh, these are races that no one nationally had ever paid attention to. And you had incumbents who had been there for 20 years and they, they kind of knew how to run their races. Sometimes they were closer than other times, but they were local races focused on local issues. And suddenly in a lot of these states, you had these ads popping up on TV saying Jim Smith, you know, and Nancy Pelosi wanted to like do X, Y, Z. And, and people were like, where is this coming from? And there's all this dark money, right? All these ads that popped out of nowhere. And the, the reason wasn't that people cared about Ohio at all or Pennsylvania or about Round Rock, Texas. It was because they wanted to control redistricting. And so money came in from these anonymous dark money groups and, and they were really successful building on the Tea Party wave. And they, a lot of legislative chambers flipped in 2010, which gave Republican, Republicans control of the redistricting process the next year. And they used it to their advantage. Democrats had no parallel infrastructure, political infrastructure in place and really got, you know, as I guess President Obama would say, shellacked. And so are there initial indications about how engaged either party is this time around? Are the Democrats... Uh, more in tune with this strategy, or is that not the case? The short answer is yes. Both parties are very engaged with redistricting. Uh, President Obama and and former Attorney General Eric Holder have this new initiative set up to try to win legislative chambers, to win governorships, because a governor could veto a redistricting plan in most states, to win state Supreme Court races, uh, to win attorney general races in order to, uh, they would say, have a seat at the table. Um, other people would say they want to be able to gerrymander if they you know, luck into having all the power. Um, and so Democrats are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into this. Republicans, likewise, are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into this. Sheldon Adelson has already committed a large sum of money for redistricting. And so, I mean, everybody is very aware of the stakes. Um, and, you know, that is in part a function of the polarized society that we live in. And then and the fact that the political parties are increasingly polarized so that on any given issue, whether it's the environment or um, abortion or gun rights or gun restrictions, however you want to put it, there is one party that is good for your issue and one party that is bad for your issue. And so if you want to have more abortion restrictions or you want to have more gun restrictions or you want to have um, single payer health care or you want to whatever it is, your party has to be in control. And so having your party in control or doing everything that you can to have your party in control means that there's a premium on trying to gerrymander. And so that has amped up the, the stakes quite a, quite a lot. And so in some states, the state legislature has control over how these districts are drawn. And in some other states, there are independent commissions. Have there been significant changes in the way that the states draw these districts from the last time we did this to how they will do it in 2021? There have been quite a few changes. Uh, this last year, we saw five states enact redistricting reforms. Four of them did so in November. Ohio did it a little bit earlier to, in some cases, strengthen the rules around redistricting, but in some cases, like in Colorado and Michigan, to create independent commissions to draw 
maps. Uh, that's something that California and Arizona had earlier done, and it totally transformed the way that maps were drawn in, in those states. California, up until 2011, had um, had maps that were a, a, the product of a bipartisan gerrymander. In other words, Democrats and Republicans got together and they said, Republicans, you get to keep the seats that you have. Democrats, you get to keep the seats that you have. And they drew the districts to make sure that no one ever would lose a seat. And in fact, in 459 congressional and uh, legislative elections over the course of the decade, only one incumbent lost. Wow. So they, it was very effective. That totally changed with California's new commission-drawn maps. Uh, there's a lot more competition on those maps. You saw that in Orange County just last year when when a bunch of seats flipped from from being Republican to Democratic. Um, and you know, if you analyze the maps, you see that. Um, both parties really have a lot of opportunity. Now, that's worked out to Democrats' advantage more recently because Democrats have done really well in California. But if Republicans in California ever got their act together and figured out how to appeal to the people of California, they would also have a lot of opportunities to win seats. And, and that really is, at the end of the day, what people think that democracy should look like, right? Uh, you know, that if your party organizes and wins more votes, they should win more seats. And, and both... Uh, Democrats and, and Republicans have that opportunity in California or a third party. And so how have the technical tools changed that are used to draw these maps from the last time we did this to when we're going to do it this next round? That's an interesting question because the day of, of um you know, big data and supercomputing really has arrived in the redistricting world. And so um, map drawers in 2021 will have more robust data and the ability to generate at the touch of a button tens of thousands, if not more maps. And this is data that is based on uh, not only how your neighborhood votes, but it's information about you as a voter based on your Google searches, what kind of car you drive, your credit score, all kinds of information, you know, similar to the information that marketers and political campaigns use. But this data is now available on the redistricting side. And what that enables map drawers to be able to do is construct profiles of who you are. So, you know, Jim Smith is a likely Republican. He's likely to vote in midterms or or not. I mean, you know, whatever the case is. And they will be able to go down the street and surgically carve up neighborhoods to create an advantage for one party or the other. Um, it used to be in the old days, you would know, for example, that a, a precinct voted 50% Democratic and 50% Republican, but you wouldn't necessarily know where the Republicans were or where the Democrats were unless you had on-the-ground knowledge about the neighborhood. But now, uh, even if you have no on-the-ground knowledge, you will know based on this big data, uh, a lot about voters, and that will make it possible to draw maps such that, you know, elections really don't matter at all. I'm also curious about how the rules have changed uh, over this last decade. And that brings me back to the Supreme Court case you referenced previously that centers on a dispute in North Carolina. Um, so how have the rules changed and what is going to be determined by this court case? So the Supreme Court has never put partisan gerrymandering out of bounds in the same way that it's put racial discrimination out of bounds. And that's led to a really anomalous situation where map drawers in many places in the South have defended maps saying, oh, no, 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 we weren't trying to discriminate against African-Americans or Latinos. We were trying to discriminate against Democrats. And that's OK, because you haven't said that that's forbidden. And 
if they happen, as it turns out, to be mostly African-American, Latino, well, that's just a happenstance of the fact that we were discriminating against Democrats. That's a real anomaly, but it's one that, that the Supreme Court has allowed because if it's on the partisan side, um, you basically get to get away with it. And if it's on the racial side, it's forbidden. And what the Supreme Court has before it are a couple of cases, one out of North Carolina and one out of Maryland, both challenging congressional maps that say that they – they were drawn for partisan advantage in a way that's unconstitutional. In a lot of ways, these are pretty easy cases uh, for the court because the evidence is so strong. In, in North Carolina, uh, map drawers not only drew, uh, you know, North Carolina is a 50-50 state. They, they not only drew a map that uh, gives 10 seats to Republicans out of the 13, so a 10-3 advantage, they said on the record that we're doing a partisan gerrymander. The maps had earlier been struck down for racial discrimination. When the legislature came back to redraw it, they said on the floor of the legislature, we're doing a political gerrymander and that's not illegal. When asked why they were requiring 10 Republican districts, they said because we couldn't figure out a way to draw 11. Uh, they put in writing that you have to have 10 districts that are Republican. Um, and so in a lot of ways, that's a really easy case. Uh, the evidence is similarly strong in Maryland. Uh, you know, the real question for the court is going to be whether it can strike down these cases without opening the, the the door in such a way that every single district in the country gets challenged, which is what that's been the nightmare scenario for the Supreme Court. That's been what they've wanted to avoid is is having to decide every single district, because after all, any district, you know, has you know some political effect. Right. You know, a 53 percent Democratic district is not as good as, say, a 55% Democratic district, right? And the Supreme Court clearly wants to say something about these really bad gerrymanders, but they don't want to open the door too wide. And and that's really going to be the, the, the question for the court. Is express partisan gerrymandering something new, or was it done before, but just under a different guise? Well, it's, you know, they, they rarely have been so blatant about it. Uh, and I think, um, you know, part of the reason that they were so blatant is the the last time the Supreme Court considered partisan gerrymandering was in 2004, 2006, in a pair of cases, one called Veeb and one called Lulac, out of Pennsylvania and Texas, respectively. And the court deadlocked really badly in those cases. Uh, you know, four of the justices said, we think that this is an issue that courts shouldn't even consider. Those were the conservative justices of the day. Another four justices said, we do think that this is an issue we should consider. And we find the, the Pennsylvania map unconstitutional. And then Justice Kennedy was in the middle saying, I don't know if this map is unconstitutional or not, but I'm not willing to say we need to walk away from this issue and it was such a bad deadlock that, that uh, many people understood the court to be basically unable to resolve the issue. And that really was a signal to uh, a lot of map makers in, in 2011 that they could do whatever they wanted. And that's what you see reflected in the North Carolina map. So, you know, the Supreme Court, by not acting, actually encouraged ever more aggressive gerrymandering. I imagine the argument for allowing partisan gerrymandering is... First, there is no prohibition expressly stated in the Constitution. Second, we won these elections, and as per the law of our state, we have the power to draw the districts. What's the counter-argument for the opposition to partisan gerrymandering? Well, the, the counter-argument really goes back to the, the framers of the Constitution. John Adams talked about how legislatures and how Congress should be an exact portrait, a miniature of the people as a whole. And, you know, North Carolina, for example, is a 50-50 state. It has a 10-3 congressional delegation, right? You know, and you could debate whether the, the delegation should be split exactly down the middle or whether there's a slight advantage for one party or the other. But it's 
under no circumstances would you say that 10-3 is an exact portrait, a miniature of the whole of, of the people of North Carolina. And, you know, after all, like we have in our country elections more frequently than than other places in, in Britain or Canada, it's every, you have an election every four or five years. We have elections every two years, and the, and the reason is that the framers thought, you know, as a, the the mood of the people changes, the the composition of Congress, the composition of of state legislature should change, so that it was constantly being recalibrated, and that and that's the whole purpose that you have to have representation that that is reflective of the the people. And when you lock in your advantage, like, you know, North Carolina is, a, a, again, a great example. It's a 10-3 map that was designed to be 10-3, even under the, under the worst circumstances. And it's it, that's proven to be the case. Even in 2018, where you had the tsunami wave election, you know, this thousand-year election, this thousand-year flood, nothing changed on the map. Now, there's an asterisk for North Carolina 9 where they had to redo the election. But on election night, it's a 10-3 map. And, you know, even if it ended up being, you know, 9-4, you know, it's still a really extreme gerrymander because, like, you should be able to change uh, the composition of your congressional delegation without depending on a thousand-year tsunami. So if express partisan gerrymandering is allowed by the Supreme Court, how would you rate the risk of a crisis-level cycle being allowed in which politicians get to choose their voters and to an even greater extent create a distortion between how people vote versus how they're represented in Congress and state legislatures. I think if the Supreme Court allows a 10-3 map in North Carolina to stand, um, especially a 10-3 map where the lawmakers said on the record, we're doing a partisan gerrymander. And the only reason we were 10-3 is that we couldn't figure out how to get to 11-2. Um, you know, I, I, if the Supreme Court allows something that egregious, that blatant to stand, um, I think all bets are off for 2021 because the lawmakers will understand correctly that there really are no limits to what they can do. And they will have at their disposal more powerful tools than ever in the form of big data, in the form of supercomputers to be able to draw maps. And I think for the populace as a whole, people will see upholding a 10-3 map in North Carolina as a political decision by the conservatives on the Supreme Court. And that will help further fuel cynicism about the political process. Um, and, and you know, really, um, I think in a lot of ways, open the door to more discussions about things like court packing and the like. Um, because people will perceive that the Supreme Court itself has lost its umpire role and has become essentially just a political branch. That sounds bad. And uh, <laughs> if they, it, but if they do do this, if they um, allow for partisan gerrymandering, what could be done to undo it or at least mitigate it? Well, there are some things that can be done. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that five states last year passed some form of redistricting reform. There are similar efforts underway in places like Virginia and New Hampshire and Oklahoma and Oregon and elsewhere to reform the process. And, you know, a lot of these are through ballot initiatives, but in some cases like in New Hampshire or in Virginia, it's through the legislature. Um, you know, I do think a lot of lawmakers are more in tune to the idea that like, hey, there's like a real risk here to us, right? Plus this 
this is really popular. In, in Ohio, for example, the redistricting reform that was passed last year carried every single Ohio congressional district, Democrat held or Republican held, by a two-thirds margin or more. Um, in no case did it not get a supermajority. And so this is something that is really popular among Democrats. It's really popular among Republicans. It's really popular among independents. Um, and similarly, people dislike increasingly the gaming of the process. So in New Jersey, when lawmakers try to ram something through the week after Thanksgiving, you know, right after the Monday after Thanksgiving, they were hoping to ramp through, uh, you know, a, a really bad reform that would have, uh, you know, helped um, cement Democrats in that state. Uh, hundreds of people showed up at the New Jersey Capitol to testify and to to give voice, and they were stuck there till almost midnight. Um, and so, you know, this is something that really resonates with people. Um, and so I do think like, you know, we are at a moment where the reform is possible, um, especially in states where you, you can go directly to the ballot through a ballot initiative, but even in states um, where you, you can't. An additional thing that could happen is that Congress could step in to fix this. Now, it would have to be a different Congress than the one that we have now. But, um, you know, Congress, through its power under the Elections Clause, at least with respect to congressional redistricting, could, um, for example, impose stronger rules around redistricting. It could even go as far as mandating uh, independent commissions for every state. Um, you know, now that would require, again, a different Congress than the one that we have now and a president willing to sign that. Uh, but those are at least potential avenues for, for um, fixing this process. So if the Supreme Court allows partisan gerrymandering, then statutory prohibitions against partisan gerrymandering would be uh, not allowed on constitutional grounds, but we could create independent commissions which would at least remove or mitigate uh, the partisan impulse that would lead to um, using that partisan data to draw gerrymandered districts. That's right. I mean, you know, the biggest problem with gerrymandering occurs when one party has control of all of the marbles. And it uses that power to go to town and to to lock in an advantage for itself. When control of government is divided, when a court draws the map, when a commission draws the map, uh, it is much fairer because, you know, that, that sort of makes sense. Like, you know, if Democrats have a seat at the table, they're not going to approve a 10-3 map in North Carolina. Um, and, and likewise, um, you know, in, in a, you know, if the scenario were reversed. Um, and so... What commissions do, um, you know, typically, for example, the California Commission has five Democrats, five Republicans, and four independents. And to approve a map, not only do you have to have a majority of the commission, but you have to have a majority of independents, a majority of Republicans, and a majority of Democrats. And so it's not as though Democrats and independents can get together and screw Republicans or any other combination. You really are incentivized to negotiate if you don't want to fail and to come up with something um, that is you know, a compromise and that is, is reasonable. And, you know, just having everybody at, this, at the table um, goes a long way to having fairer math. Are there some tea leaves to be read here on the Supreme Court decision? Are, have there been indicators that would uh, identify who the swing votes are in this case? That's an interesting question because, you know, this is an issue that the, the court hasn't um, taken up for quite some time. Um, it did last term and, and then the court further changed with the retirement of Justice Kennedy and the addition of Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, for a long time, people had thought that Justice Kennedy was the swing vote. But, you know, based on the arguments last week, it, it looks like, you know, you have a couple of options for, for 
for swing votes, one of whom, interestingly, is Justice Kavanaugh, who expressed a lot of um, who asked a lot of questions that at least suggested that he was opening the door to policing uh, partisan gerrymandering and recognized how extreme the situations in North Carolina and Maryland are. Another potential swing is Chief Justice Roberts, who, at least in the past, has expressed concern that, you know, uh, you know, when Justice Kennedy last year asked a hypothetical about what happens if a state law requires you to favor one party over the other, Chief Justice Roberts and his back and forth with the lawyers in the case seemed to signal that that he thought that that would be a problem. Well, that's exactly what happened in North Carolina, right? You you actually have people saying on the record and putting in writing that they, they're going to favor one party over the other. And so I think that pe- most people would regard Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh as the potential swings and in the case of, of Chief Justice Roberts, for an additional reason, which is that he is very concerned about the institutional integrity of the court. And I think he understands that upholding a map that was drawn in such a blatant way as North Carolina's would be, you know, would just destroy um, the, the reputation of the court. And so I, I think at the end of the day, the real question for him is going to be, can you strike down North Carolina without opening the door too wide? A couple of times now you've mentioned the reputation of the court and how it might be affected by this decision. And, you know, we've seen in polling, really beginning with the Bush v. Gore decision back in 2000, of how the public has increasingly viewed the Supreme Court as a political entity versus an independent judicious body. And for those and other reasons, some people are floating ideas, um, including putting term limits on the court, uh, expanding the number of justices, what do you think about those potential reforms, or as well as any other reforms I haven't mentioned? Well, I, I do think like that would be helpful in some way. Um, I'm not sure so much about expanding the court, but certainly having term limits on the court, I think, could be really a good thing. Um, you know, right now every Supreme Court appointment is an existential battle, right? Because this is an appointment of a person who will be on the court potentially for 40 years, right? And 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 um, if you had, for example, 18-year term limits, every president would get to appoint two justices. Um, and, you know, it, it would perhaps lower the stakes a little bit. And it also would potentially mean that you're not always going for somebody who's like in their early 40s, right? And that you might go for somebody who's like 55 or 60, right, and, and would be able to serve out um, their term. And, and that potentially brings additional wisdom to the court because these are people who have had, you know, an additional couple of decades of life uh, before they go on the court. You know, I, I do think that there are some benefits to that. As to whether the Supreme Court should be expanded, I, I do think like there are arguments in favor of that. You know, some people have suggested expanding it to such a size that then you have panels of justices instead of all of the justices sitting in every case. And, you know, that might add some uncertainty to the mix and and could be a beneficial thing. But, you know, clearly we, a lot of the presidential candidates already have started injecting these ideas in. And I think we're going to see a fulsome debate about these because, um, you know, as with many parts of our democracy, it's not clear that the court is completely functioning regardless of what it does in the partisan gerrymandering cases. Earlier, you mentioned um, other countries and how in some, for example, they have different frequency with respect to how often they have elections. But are there some uh, models or lessons from other liberal democracies that we can learn in terms of redistricting? For, For example, is there a particularly effective way that they deal with the issue of partisan gerrymandering? Well, you know, most countries do not allow politicians to draw maps. Um, We are a bit of an anomaly in the fact that we allow 
people who, in in the case of, of legislators drawing their own districts, have a direct stake in the outcome, right? And, you know, we are an anomaly in, in that regard. Most countries like Britain use a boundary commission or, or have some kind of neutral governmental agency drawing maps. And so I don't think that we would ever be in a position to sort of move fully to that because we the U.S. is a much more complicated society than, than many countries. For example, you have, you know, uh, you know, ethnic groups with a, a claim to like, you know, a seat at the table. And, you know, there's a lot more negotiating that sort of has to go on in a country that is as complicated as the U.S. But there are certainly ways that you could have more disinterested people decide those disputes. Um, and a commission is a great way to do that. You know, in California, to be on the commission, you have to apply you have to actually write like five essays and you have to be interviewed by a panel of three auditors and if that sounds really painful um it kind of is and you know it's all broadcast on tv and then there's this randomized selection process and it goes on and and after applicants are screened and put in a pool and so there are ways certainly to to have people who are more disinterested be the ones with the pen and rather than lawmakers who have an interest who are in the middle of doing other things who have other parochial considerations and so i do think that there are a lot of things that we we could do better michael lee this has been a fascinating discussion thank you so much for joining us yeah i'm glad to do it thanks again to michael lee for doing that interview actually i'm going to give him a double thanks as we had to do a bit of re-recording Due to a technical issue, this is clearly a very professional podcast. Thanks uh, to all of you for listening, and be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, so you know what we're up to. I'll see you next week.